This episode of the Real Rescue Podcast is brought to you by SR3 Rescue Concepts because you don't know what you don't know. Life Saving Systems Corporation, we do our work so you can do yours. Tough gear for tough jobs. Breeze Eastern, the world's only dedicated hoist and winch provider. And Hilo Vodka, simply better vodka. SR3 Rescue Concepts is a training company that can help you with your helicopter training, a standardization and safety check, or maybe just an audit or an FAA refresher. They're ready to bring your agency up to date with current techniques, rules, regulations, and equipment. The training staff is amazing! With certified and flight instructor pilots, experienced crew members, which I'm happy to say that I get to be one of them, they offer training in rescue, medical, tactical, firefighting, ground operations, and night vision goggle use. SR3 has partnered with Petzl to assist with the PPE inspection course and the highly specific Lazard, which is used in helicopter cliff and mountain rescues. SR3 goes above and beyond the helicopter world too. They also provide high angle rescue training and tactical medicine training. Contact them today at sr3rescueconcepts.com that's sr3rescueconcepts.com and follow them on Instagram at sr3 underscore rescue that's sr3 underscore rescue we're also brought to you by Life Saving System Corporation they manufacture the world's toughest helicopter rescue gear from my favorite harness as a rescueman the Triton to the rescue baskets and litters, and of course, the most popular hoist hook in helicopters, the D-Lock. The team at LSC cuts, bends, welds, sews, and machines these products into existence every day and then sends them on their way to us. We do our work so you can do yours. LSC, tough gear for tough jobs. Check them out today at lifesavingsystems.com. That's lifesavingsystems.com. And follow them on Instagram at R-E-S-Q-G-E-A-R. That's at R-E-S-Q-G-E-A-R. We're also brought to you by Breeze Eastern. Since the very first helicopter rescue in November 1945, Breeze Eastern has designed and manufactured superior rescue hoist solutions. While much of the technology and unique mission requirements have changed over the past 75 years, their commitment to the rescuers, the operators, and those who get rescued has not. Contact Breeze Eastern today by visiting them at breeze-eastern.com. That's breeze-eastern.com. And we are brought to you by Hilo Vodka. Hilo Vodka is a premium craft vodka made from the highest quality ingredients and six times distilled. Hilo Vodka was made to be crisp, refreshing, and unintrusive. It's exactly how vodka should be made, clean enough to drink neat and worthy to be mixed with your favorite cocktails. They make a crisp, refreshing vodka that is carefully carbon filtered for a smooth sip and no bite. Hilo Vodka is 100% American made. It is proudly veteran-owned by a former search and rescue pilot. Simply Better Vodka. Order yours today by visiting shophelovodka.com. That's shophelovodka.com. FedEx delivery is available in most states. Use the promo code CAPITALS, R-E-S-Q, 
and you get 10% off your order. Plus, if you buy three bottles or more, it's free shipping. Please remember to drink responsibly, and FAA Part 91 says eight hours, bottle the throttle. I am absolutely honored and privileged to have our next guest. It was amazing to sit down and listen to him and the old school stories and what they did in the U.S. Coast Guard well before my time. Uh, If you guys want to look this up, you can check it out yourself cgaviationhistory.org that's cgaviationhistory.org and you can read up on some of the older pilots and the older uh, like where stuff started in Coast Guard Aviation but this guy in particular he he's one of the most highly decorated pilots that the Coast Guard has ever had a silver star two distinguished flying crosses 11 air medals two letters of combinations just to name a few so without further ado Please welcome my friend, Mr. Lonnie Mixon. My name is Jason Quinn. I am United States Coast Guard Rescue Swimmer number 500. These are my rescues and rescues from those of us that put our lives on the line every day so others may live. This is The Real Rescue Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Real Rescue Podcast. Today, I have with me an amazing guest. I am beyond excited, super privileged, super honored, super humbled to have this man with me, Mr. Lonnie Mixon. He is a Coast Guard pilot, like from back in the day, he paved the way. How are you, sir? I'm doing fine, Jason. Thanks. Very good. Very good. Uh, Mr. Mixon, if you could be so kind as just introduce yourself to everybody out there and just tell them a little bit of who you are and where you are, a little bit of your career, so we, we get a good feel about really who you are. Okay. Well, uh started out, I was born in Mobile, Alabama in January 1933. Uh, went to McGill uh, Institute High School, uh, Catholic School for Boys in Mobile. And after graduating in 1951, I started to Spring Hill College. Um, and about halfway through the first year, I decided this is not really my calling, so I need to do something else. And when, when I was in high school, a Coast Guard cadet had come down and uh, talked to the senior class about the Coast Guard, the functions and duties and so forth. And uh, it was quite interesting, you know, Mobile is, is on the waterfront. so. Uh, I think about halfway through my first year at Spring Hill, I decided to go ahead and enlist all my friends. You know, that was a uh, Korean War was uh, in go there. So um, I decided to join the Coast Guard at that time. And um, in December uh, 1951, I I went to boot camp in Oakland, California. And uh, after boot camp was uh, stationed in San Diego, California on the Coast Guard cutter Perseus. That's a nice spot to start. Yes, it was. (laughs) Beautiful. Especially back in the the, uh, early 50s. Yeah. Um, And uh, I was sent then immediately to Navy Sonar School in San Diego. I I wasn't particularly happy about going, but, you know, they said, go, you go. So I I went to the sonar school. Uh, That lasted about six months, I guess. And after that, I was sent to... uh, uh, Let's see, it was the Coast Guard Cutter 83320 uh, out of San Pedro, California. 
Uh, nine months there was transferred to the Ponchi train, which was a 255 cutter. And our primarily, uh, primary responsibilities there were ocean stations uh, that was halfway between the states and Hawaii, where we would act as a nav aid to all aircraft flying back and forth and uh, weather balloons and so forth. Um, I got out after, after my three-year tour. As a matter of fact, at that point in time, I had, I had advanced to first-class sonarman. So I retired after, I mean, I didn't retire, but I got out after three years and uh, then decided I liked it. So I re-enlisted in March. And um, then I was sent to Galveston, Texas, um, the Coast Guard Cutter Cahoon. Uh, and from there then to Mobile, Alabama to the Coast Guard Cutter Sebago. And there I had applied, I was on the list for chief, but uh, back in those days, it, I think there was only, uh, I think billets for like seven chiefs, Sonoman in the Coast Guard. Okay. I applied for OCS. Uh, so I'd applied for OCS and was accepted. So I went to New London, Connecticut, the OCS in uh, 1958. That's my neck of the woods. I was not around yeah. yet, though. <laughs> okay, yeah. Let's see, that was 1958, I guess I was commissioned uh, and uh, went to Moorhead City, North Carolina, the Coast Guard Cutter. Cholula. Um, and it was there after a year, I was a deck officer there. And for uh, after about a year and a half, we were out off of Cape Hatteras and heavy seas and everything and searching. And uh, it was getting dark this night. And this Coast Guard plane called in and said, I'm not calling Elizabeth City and tell them, well, the weather's deteriorating out here. So we're, we'll be landing in about 35 minutes. I said, oops. Boy, that's if we left right now, it would be tomorrow afternoon before we got into port. I said that doesn't sound right. So I uh, applied for flight training. And uh, smart move, I was, sir. I was, <laughs> yes. So I was selected for flight training and went to Pensacola in 1960. Uh, got my wings in, at Corpus Christi in 1961, Coast Guard Aviator 857, and was stationed in Brooklyn, New York. Get, nice. Getting back up in your area there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, after, after Brooklyn, uh, the, of course, the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, was going on down in Florida. And I was transferred to Miami in the beginning of 1963. Uh, they were flying the Albatross, which is a beautiful airplane, love that. And um, then I was sent to, uh, back to the Navy helicopter training at Ellison Field in Pensacola. Was, uh, now I was flying helicopters and fixed wing. And that, that was a great thing down in Miami. At that time, you flew both. Uh, and that was before the helicopters. We only had to have one pilot. We didn't have to have a second. Of course, we didn't have enough pilots. Yes. Uh, I <laughs> hey, when you don't and, have enough, uh, you just stop it with one. That's fine. <laughs> one, that, that's right. Uh, and of course, that was very interesting and fun flying down there, flying off the water, Key Biscayne, the old Albatross, the seaplane. That was great. Nice. Um, and then... Um, Let's see, I guess 1966, uh, I was ordered from there to Detroit, Michigan. Uh, we were to, there were, I think, 10, 10 pilots and uh, like 29, I think, air crewmen uh, to set up and start a new air station at Detroit. Um, they hadn't started the hangar or anything yet when we got up there. We got there in the spring of 66, and we were operating out of the end of a Air Force supply hangar they had let us use, so we put some petitions in there, and we had the CO's office, XO's office, and I was the operations officer at that time. And the only thing we had, we had uh, a uh, teletype that was connected to all of the uh, units there and headquarters, which was in Cleveland. 
Uh, we had a uh, weather facsimile machine and a telephone. That was the extent of our operations nerve center. Uh, Man, things but, have but really it was, changed. It, it, I'll tell you it, what. It was, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, that's right. Uh, of course, you know, in those days, we didn't have uh, weather radars we have now, and we didn't have uh, GPS, and we didn't have great guys like you to go with us when we went out on the oh, mission. Oh, thank you, sir. Uh, I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, um, and um, essentially, that was it. Let me see. We got, of course, Coast Guard asked for, we did, we're going to have an exchange program with the Air Force, wanted three helicopter pilots. Uh, and I'm sorry, the they after, only wanted three? At the time, yeah, okay, three okay. to start out. There were only three. Okay, uh, had three helicopter pilots and I think three fixed wing pilots in the beginning. The first, the first transition, the first swap, um, and uh, uh, I had volunteered for that and luckily was selected. And uh, then I went from there to the Air Force and served with them a year or so. And we'll get to that a little later on when we yeah. get, when we get back to that. But it, but essentially, I, I guess that's it, Jason. Pretty much. Uh, uh, I guess, actually, uh, of course, like I say, flying in Miami was just great all the time. We picked up so many uh, Cuban refugees that were, you know, floating up the uh, Gulf Stream and were isolated on some of the Bahama, Bahamian islands that we were able to pick up. It was very gratifying there. Yeah. But I guess the first real uh, hair-raising rescue I had was in Detroit. It was the uh, uh, Nordmere. So uh, I believe, wait a minute, let me, I, I don't mean to cut you mm -hmm. off, sir, but the, no. the Nord, uh, Nordmere, is that correct, Nordmere? That, yes. You, mm -hmm. you got an award for this one. Right, yes. I and have. if you don't yeah. mind, I would, like, being that this is the first one you really remember, I'd like to read this for everybody, and then, uh, and then really we'll go back into the story, and you can kind of run us through what happened. Is that cool? Sure. All right. So... Citation to accompany the award of the Distinguished Flying Cross to Lieutenant Lonnie L. Mixon, United States Coast Guard. For meritorious achievement while participating in aerial flight on afternoon of November 29, 1966, as pilot of a Coast Guard helicopter engaged in the transfer of eight crewmen from the grounded West German motor vessel Nordmere to the Coast Guard cutter Mackinac, Lieutenant Mixon successfully navigated the helicopter 150 miles through heavy snow, turbulence, and gale force winds only 300 feet above the terrain with low ceilings and icing conditions. The final 80 miles of the route was flown in nearly continuous snow at 200 feet over Lake Huron, using the shoreline for navigation. After approximately two and a half hours of low-level flying, the Nordmere was located grounded by Thunder Bay Shoal on Lake Huron, and communications established with the crew who advised they were stranded and on the foredeck with no power, no heat, and desired immediate removal. Lieutenant Mixon expertly maneuvered the helicopter and within 22 minutes accomplished the hoist of the eight crew members from the Nordmere to icy heavy deck of the Coast Guard cutter Mackinac. Minutes after the operation was complete, the Normandier broke athwart ships and her deck became awash. Lieutenant Mixon displayed expert airmanship and dauntless valor 
throughout the perilous rescue mission. His skill, courage, and judgment, and unwilling devotion to duty reflect the highest credits upon himself and the United States Coast Guard. Man, that is an awesome, awesome story. And the greatest part about this story in particular is you only have a hoist operator in the back. You don't have a, a guy on deck. No, that's right. David Knotts was a third-class uh, aviation machinist. Uh, he was the crew crew chief and the hoist operator. There were three of us. Jack Redditcher was a co-pilot. Um, I'll just, I mean, that pretty much tells the story, but this is quite unique, I think, Jason, in the fact that um, in Detroit, um, I had been listening or reading all day about what was going on on the teletype because when the Nordmere had gotten there early that morning uh, to try to take the people off, the seas were so heavy they could not lower a boat. They tried to float a raft across. They couldn't do it because of the 20-foot seas and so forth. And that was in Detroit, I mean, uh, Traverse City's area of uh, responsibility. So they were directed to send a helicopter. So Traverse City said the weather's so bad they could not launch. So I sat there, this was noonish or so, I guess, on, on this Tuesday and watching everything transpire. And at the time at Detroit there, we were ceiling, I guess, with maybe 400 feet or something like that, half mile, quarter mile visibility. So I told the captain, I said, Captain, maybe we ought to try if we can go from the south and get in there. He's the captain, Jim Swanson, at the time said, okay, we'll contact the, the uh, district in Cleveland and see what they have to say. So I called them and, and told them what we thought. And they sent a message back saying, you know, uh, launch at your discretion. So wow, we, nice. we launched. Uh, and then uh, about halfway there, like I say, Jack Ritterture was, was co-pilot. And about halfway up there, Jack was saying, you know, we, we really ought to land, I think, and check and see if we're taking any ice. And I said, well, no, we're, you know, snow was built up on the, on the windscreen and so forth. but. Then no, you know, it's not taking any more power than normal. We're maintaining altitude and airspeed. So uh, I, I think we're doing okay. We'll just keep going. You just keep a close watch on the power. If it looks like I'm using more power to maintain this, let me know. Okay. So we got on up then and up to uh, Saginaw Point. And I said, okay, this is our point. of. We were down to 200 feet now over the, over the water, about an eighth of a mile, eighth of a mile visibility. Um, and said, let's go out and we'll go, do, we'll go northeast off the point here to see if we can locate them. So we went out of bearing, heading of 045. I said, okay, Jack, mark the time and we'll go out in about 20 minutes. When we get to 20 minutes, we haven't seen them. We'll turn around and start doing a ladder search back toward uh, Saginaw to find them. So at the end of um, uh, 20 minutes, Jack said, okay, it's time to turn. And for some reason I said, well, Jack, let's just go two more minutes. And about a minute and a half later, we looked down and we were directly over them. Just no it's way. amazing magic. Okay. And then, you know, we affected the rescue and so forth. But the, the, the matter you talk, the matter of fate. Oh, oh, the other thing point I was gonna make when we hoisted the first four, we were getting now pretty low on, you know, thinking about fuel. And uh, so Jack said, Well, let, let's what, why don't we take these four into Wordsmith Air Force Base, refuel, and then come back and get the other four. That, well, the weather is going to be worse. It's going to be night. We can't. So I said, here, let, let me call. I called the Mackinac and said, I want to lower these guys down to you and then go back and pick up the other four and do that. So, th so that's what we did. We picked them up. We can only have room for four in a helicopter at one time. So what we what helicopter four. were you guys flying at the time? H-52. Oh, okay. Nice. And uh, 
So we did that and um, lowered them, lowered them down. To, got all eight of them over there. And let me tell you that the, the great job there was was the hoist operator, David Noss, and yeah. and the guy on the deck. Uh, of course, you know the Mackinac was uh, heavy seas, rocking and rolling, and the guys down there, the, the way they handled the, the, the basket when they let it down, and the coordination between the seamen there and and the crew and the hoist operator to me was just wonderful. That was really the the success of the mission almost. And uh, so anyway, we completed that. We went into Wordsmith there to get fuel and started started back down now to Detroit. And just as we got airborne, we got a call from the, from the uh, Mackinac and said, the, within 10 minutes after we had left scene that the uh, ship had broken athwart ships and gone totally awash. Now, the thing is, three things keeping in mind, had we not decided in Detroit to maybe try an effort yeah. to go, that, that's item one. Secondly, I mean, we didn't know that had any idea that time was of the essence. You know, we could have waited till the next day and, and to try to rescue them possibly. And again, halfway up, had we stopped, found a place to land to see if we were to, had iced up, that would have been another 20, 20 minute delay. And thirdly, uh, had we not gone that extra two minutes, we wouldn't have rescued them. And the other thing, had we left with the first two, two um, the first four and gone into uh, uh, Wordsmith, the remaining four would have been on the ship when it went to ships, when it broke thought ships. Oh. So to me, that was really a fateful, fateful mission there. So many, so many variables. Wow. But that, 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 that makes that one memorable. Yeah, I definitely. Hey, the fact that you guys were hoisting them off the, the you know, the, the first boat and then bringing them to the Coast Guard cutter, that's incredible mm -hmm. as well. I mean, that's that's well, not always normal. So Well, it wasn't too bad uh, off the Nordmere because they were aground, so the ship was pretty stable, so hoist them there, you know, it was quite easily. It was yeah. when we were lowering them down to the Mackinac, that, that was the tough part. Yeah, because you said in the beginning, this was, you had about 20-foot seas. Like yes, those mm -hmm. those are big seas. Even to hoist down to like to hoist somebody off a vessel, now you got to hoist them into the vessel. Holy cow! <laughs> that is that is incredible. And with the like, we're talking again, 1966. They don't have mm -hmm. the hover hole. They don't have. You guys didn't have all the cool <laughs> toys we have here. So you're manhandling <laughs> that aircraft. <laughs> That's right. A lot of twist, twisting and turning and kicking. That's right. Oh. That is incredible. Well done, sir. Man, that's awesome. Okay. So you actually have another one that was out of um, Detroit while you were up there, which was an, an air metal. And if, if you don't oh, mind, yeah. it, this okay. one actually is pretty cool, too. I'd like to read this one. And then at, right after this, I believe, is when you got deployed. Is that, is that about accurate? Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This All one right. was... Uh, uh, I guess not too long after after the Nordmere, um, Point Muley, which is Muley, I think is the way you pronounce it. Anyway, uh, that's down at, in uh, Lake Erie. And uh, at the, I guess at the bottom of the uh, Detroit River. Anyway, there were hunters down there that were isolated. It was a storm, freezing nights, and they were isolated on a little island down there. And they couldn't get off and they had called for, for assistance. And we left out of Detroit for the, well, actually Selfridge Air Force Base, where it was and had radar vectors 
to the head of the uh, Detroit River. And we had to orbit there. It was snowing so badly, couldn't see. Uh, so we just orbited there for about 15, 20 minutes until the uh, snow subsided a little bit so we could see enough to follow the river down to, to get to Lake Erie. And then once we got down there, we, we were searching and, and we were able, we saw the bonfire that the, the people had made. Nice. I forgot what they, two or three, three people, whatever it was. Anyway, we, we were able to land and, and get them out of there. And, so you uh, landed right on the was, island. Yes, a little, little spit up on the island there, yep. Man, that's awesome. Now, and right here it says, uh, you know, the visibility was limited. Your altitude was 200 feet above the lake. So you're basically running the 200 feet mm. off the deck all the way there. Yeah, once we got down down the river, went down the Detroit River, yes. <laughs> oh, sir, that is awesome. Again, all, without the, the all the instruments that we have today, I mean, you guys flew this stuff. 1966, it's, it's like... Ah, for me, I just, I love this. I, I absolutely love this. <laughs> Man, good, good for you guys. Well done, sir. All right, so now from here is when you start to go to the Air Force. Was right, like I said, they had requested uh, volunteers and, and Jack Ritterter, who was, again, my co-pilot on, on the other mission, he was also, I was the ops officer and he was the assistant ops officer there in Detroit, he had volunteered. And both of us were selected, two of the three selected for the initial uh, exchange. And Lance Egan, a lieutenant out of, uh, he was stationed at Brooklyn, I think. He was the third member of our first group that was selected to go with the Air Force. And we went through different school. We went to, um, to transition to the H-3. Uh, we went to, uh, Wichita Falls, Texas. That's where we spent, I guess, a couple of months learning yeah. to fly the twin engine jobber there and a couple of other schools. And then to Eglin Air Force Base in Pensacola where we did air-to-air -air refueling. That, that, was, that was something new and exciting, flying up a helicopter up behind a C-130 and, and refueling. That was <laughs> quite fun. Um, and then let's see, we got to uh, Da Nang Air Base in, uh, let's see, I guess, March. March of 1968, uh, that was the famous Tut uh, offensive had begun by the North in February, and that so that was so our welcome for, aboard. For uh, for everybody that doesn't know, Da Nang was the basically the hub in Vietnam for all the Airedales, and that was the in South Vietnam was the Da Nang Da Nang Air Force or Da Nang yeah. base. So. Yeah, actually, that was that was the northernmost uh, Air Force base uh, in the area. Mm -hmm. it, uh, it was uh, in South Vietnam, though, correct? Like right. Da Nang was mm -hmm. in, in the north part of South Vietnam, like mm -hmm. right? Yeah, just as close to the border as they could get without causing issues right. and like taking the DM, right close yeah. to the DMC. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And so. one one other little thing when I, when we first got there. Uh, this young Air Force captain came up to me and says, uh, Lonnie Mixon says, you don't remember me, but says, my name is Dickie Yeen. Um, I, was a, I, I was a counselor in my senior year at McGill between my junior and senior year. Uh, during the summer, we had a, there was a boys camp, Camp Cullen in, in uh, Mobile, Alabama, that 
the football coach was in charge of it, his summer job. And he hired four of us football players to, to work there for the summer uh, on Mobile Bay there for the Camp Cullen. And Dickie Yeen was a little young lad of rest of maybe 19 years old when I was there. And of course I didn't remember him, but when I got to, to uh, Da Nang, he came up to me and introduced himself and says, you know, you remember me back, back then and so forth. So that, that was a nice thing. But later on, I'll tell you a thing, keep in mind Jack Ritterture yep. and Dickie Yeen. They were the two people that, um, that I had known quite well back the way. After one mission, I had gone out. Uh, there we had the duty like uh, um, a 24-hour period on base. Of course, we had other units. We had orbit units out orbiting during the day and uh, another team up at Quang Tree during the day. But we always kept one ready crew at Da Nang uh, 24 hours a day, a day ready to go. So I was the duty pilot on this, this Saturday and got a message that about uh, 10 o'clock Saturday night that I had to go out on the first flight Sunday morning that there was an air, I mean, an army pilot and his crewmen uh, had bailed out over the Ashaw Valley and uh, they weren't under fire or anything, but we, we need to go get them. So we were up at first light and went out and, and found them and picked them up and came back to Da Nang. And when we got back, Jack Ritter and Dickie Yeen were waiting to get in the helicopter that I'd just gotten out of. Okay. Uh, they refueled the airplane and they got in it and they took off for a rescue mission. Uh, I filled out the paperwork, went up to the BOQ for breakfast and got a call from the duty officer and said that the airplane had just gotten shot down, no survivors. Oh. The two of them, that, that my good friend, Jack Ritterture from Detroit and Dickie Yeen, who I'd known when I was in high school and he was a, a young man at Camp Cohen flying together. I, you know, I thought that was rather, rather unique situation, um, you know, as, as stories go anyway. Yeah, especially with an aircraft that you just got out of. Um, right, that's right. Wow, mm -hmm. man. Well, I, I am, I'm sorry to hear, sorry to hear that. Uh, you, you actually had quite a bit of interesting cases over there yourself. And, and, mm -hmm. and let me, I'm going to throw this out there for everybody and, and you can do your own research. You know, uh, I was lucky enough. You sent me um, some information as far as just to Google. Um, I believe it's Coast Guard aviators in Vietnam. And you can find a lot of these stories that are out there. Uh, one of them in, in particular is actually mentioned in another book that I had been uh, reading, which the Coast Guard aviators yourself came over and helped fly the H3 were known as the Jolly Greens because the Jolly Greens were this big BC aircraft that would go in and, and save the, the guardian angels is, is what you guys were going in. And the Coast Guard pilots were very respected throughout the Vietnam era because you guys would you guys, man, handled that aircraft so well, and the search and rescue skills that you pulled out of the Coast Guard to bring into to Vietnam was incredible. And that's that's kind of what I'm I'm getting into right now because, I mean, you did some in crazy rescues. You you earned right here. You earned eight uh, air medals over there, a distinguished flying cross, and a silver star. 
Like mm -hmm. hats off to you, sir. That is amazing. Amazing. And, uh, you know, I, I'm happy to read some of these, um, but I'm also happy just to listen to you. Tell me what you remember, because uh, this is this is awesome. Well, I guess I'll, I'll just say, um, well, there are a couple. This, this one, um, let's see, I was given here the Vietnamese Cross of Gallantry uh, on this mission. This was one where uh, uh, the army had, a, had put a, a squad in on a mountain side actually. And um, for some reason they could not extract them. They couldn't get them out. And normally the Jolly Greens, we were not, we were not uh, tasked with, with extractions and so forth. Our main job was looking, trying to pick up downed helicopter, I mean, downed pilots throughout the area. But anyway, they called us to go in and try to get these, this, this eight man crew that was, was on the side of a mountain and uh, it was sort of like a plateau and they were pinned down in there. And I don't know why the army couldn't get in and get them, but anyway, um, we were asked to do it. So we went in um, and flew into the side of the mountain and established a hover on this little plateau. And of course there was elephant grass, which you know, elephant grass goes uh, uh, eight, 10 feet high all around. And was doing a turn on the spot to turn away from the mountain. Uh, and all of a sudden we just became under heavy ground fire on both sides, I guess. The, this, uh, and um, one of the fuel lines on the side of the airplane was, was severed and the inside of the helicopter was immediately inundated with JP-4. Uh, and actually it was dripping off the instrument panel. It was, it was so bad, you know, oh. downwash and everything burned everywhere. But anyway, we did, uh, dumped it over the side and we, we were able to, to, to keep the airplane flying and, and headed back for, for Da Nang. Uh, of course, you know, we were just, I thought at the time we were just a, an airball, airball ready to happen uh, with all that people. So I uh, told everyone not to uh, do anything, move anything that they didn't have to any. So we made minimum <laughs> uh, radio transmissions. We did tell them that we had, you know, taken heavy fire and, and that they, they were sitting there waiting for us when we came in. Uh, so we made it back to, and the, the question then was, should we bail out of that sucker over the jungle or just keep it flying? So we decided to, I decided to keep going and we did make it back to Da Nang. And when we landed and just did a running landing um, and fuel just flowing out of the airplane, out of the bottom of it when we landed. So what we did is uh, the crewmen in the back, they were, they were just, the socks and shoes were just soaked with JP-4. So they gave them, uh, they got some clean socks and shoes and we got another helicopter and we were going back for another effort. About halfway back to scene, we heard that the next, they sent another helicopter in after, after hours and it yeah. got shot down. And uh, so that, so that, was, got that was another the original mm -hmm. guys that are down and another helicopter that just crashed in the same vicinity trying to rescue those guys. Right. Yeah. Oh boy. So, so that's, that's, that was another pretty exciting one. You know, again, that, that 30 minute flight with the, uh, the airplane fill of JP four. Yeah. Now, Let's see. when you guys went back in to, uh, cause you said you were on your way back, did you end up, coming in to have her fire again and were you able to get the guys no out? no we were we, no we were en route uh, to the area yep. and we heard that they, they'd shot, gotten shot down 
there was another helicopter. We always had two helicopters normally. I always called a high bird, low bird, and a high bird. The low bird would be the one that we go in and would try to affect the, the rescue. The high bird, the helicopter was a backup in case something happened to the first helicopter. And in this case, that's exactly what happened. The, the, the helicopter that got shot down, it actually sort of got off the edge of the, of the, of the uh, cliff there, but it crashed at the bottom of the mountain. And uh, two of the, let's see, the pilot and one crewman was killed. Uh, the co-pilot and the other crewman got out and the high, high bird helicopter were able to go in, since now they're down at the bottom of the mountain were able to go in and rescue them and bring them out. And also it was at the bottom of the mountain is where the eight uh, army rank people were. So we were able to get all of them out. Now, if I remember correctly, and this is just throughout the books that I've read about some of this stuff, um, the army men that were up there actually, when that helicopter crashed, they made their way down to the crash site to try to help like secure right. all the people yeah, that's, there. Mm-hmm. And I believe mm-hmm. that's actually in the book that, um, uh, that strike uh, John Stryker Meyer talks about in Across the mm-hmm. Fence because I believe he was on that mission, and uh, mm-hmm. they they were the ones getting distracted. So the fact that you were in there trying to get them out is, is just how it how everything wheels and weeds together uh, for that whole it conflict. It's it's amazing. So oh, that's incredible, man. Good for you, sir. Awesome. Um, all right, so you had, I, I'm going to actually touch on two more, because like I said, you earned yourself, uh, and I say earned yourself because you were over there, uh, you earned yourself a, a Distinguished Flying Cross as well, and that was um, basically, I, I'd like to read this one because it's actually a really nice write-up, and this was done by the Air Force given to you, and then I'd like to touch on your uh, Silver Star, if that's okay. Sure. All right. Citation to accompany the award of the Distinguished Flying Cross. First Oak Leaf Cluster to Lieutenant Commander Lonnie L. Mixon, United States Coast Guard. Lieutenant Commander Lonnie L. Mixon distinguished himself by heroism while participating in aerial flight as rescue crew commander of the HH-3 helicopter in Southeast Asia on 2 July 1968. On that day, Commander Mixon penetrated a heavily defended area of North Vietnam to attempt the rescue of an injured downed pilot. Before a recovery could be initiated, low fuel state forced him to depart the area. As Commander Mixon returned from the refueling, another aircraft was shot down. With unwavering calmness and courage, he proceeded directly to the crash site. Although he was without an escort over the area of active anti-aircraft site, Commander Mixon arrived over the scene of the crash, prepared for an immediate rescue, but there were no survivors. The outstanding heroism and selfless devotion to duty displayed by Commander Mixon reflect greatly upon himself and the United States Coast Guard. Wow. So you went into a place that was already under fire, downed helicopter, and you're going back in to make sure to see if there's any survivors. Yeah. What that was actually... um as I was going back for fuel, I had a stad, an A1E, that was escorting me. He was maybe a couple of hundred yards off my wing, following me back as I was going back to Grand Tree for fuel. And he was the one, my escort was the one that shot down. I watched him, I saw the plane, I saw where it crashed. This was right in the DMZ. Uh, and so 
where I saw him crash, I just, you know, uh, followed him right into the crash site to see if he might have survived, uh, but he did not. Uh, that, that's what that one was all about. Uh, but that was sort of sad again. Uh, you know, you're the guy was out there protecting you, protecting me. Um, so anyway, yeah, that that was that was that one. Yeah, sort wow. of sad when the guy like uh, that was following, being my escort, got shot down. Man, that. You know, I have to ask, so I, I have not been in a combat zone. And for everybody that has been in a combat zone, my hat is off to you guys. Um, that there ha If you can kind of tell me like the, what you, or like even the feeling you have, cause it's your friends that, that are in there and it's your, your buddies that you're overseeing, you're watching them go in to the ground. It's gotta be kind of an eerie feeling. Yeah, and I'm sure I'm sure each person has you know different feelings. Um, at the time, though, Jason, you don't you don't have time to think about those things. You you know you're you're taken up with the uh, exigency of the situation at the moment and trying to do what you have to do. Uh, and then once it's over, that's when you go back in retrospect and, and start thinking about oh my gosh, what happened, what could have happened, and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Oh, wow. Just wow. I, I really am just beside myself with a lot of this. All right, I'm going to go into one more. And that is your last one. And then and then uh, we're going to kind of go from there. But citation to accompany the award of the Silver Star to Lieutenant Commander Lonnie L. Mixon, United States Coast Guard. Lieutenant Commander Lonnie L. Mixon distinguished himself by gallantry in connection with a military operation against the opposing armed forces as rescue crew commander of the H-3 helicopter in Southeast Asia on 1 July, 1968. On that date, Commander Mixon penetrated a heavily defended area of North Vietnam to attempt the rescue of an injured downed pilot. With complete disregard for his own safety, Commander Mixon twice established a hover in the face of hostile fire to attempt the recovery of the injured airman. Twice, Commander Mixon was forced to withdraw due to the intense hostile ground fire that had driven off another rescue helicopter and subsequently damaged his own aircraft. By his gallantry and devotion to duty, Commander Mixon has reflected great credit upon himself and the United States Coast Guard. Wow. Just wow, sir. <laughs> back back in the day, Jason. Back in the day. Uh, but but let me let me let me just add this immediately right now. The Air Force pilots, they they were such a super group too. I mean, this these few missions that we talk about that I was on and so forth, the Air Force pilots were in doing that and more all, all around us every day. So um, it just goes on and on. Uh, with with them, that was, it was just such a such a an honor to represent the Coast Guard, and uh, that was, I guess, one of one of the main reasons I volunteered uh, again uh, because of the the call to duty, if you will, and and I felt that you know I could represent the Coast Guard well, which which we did, all, all of the the pilots that did, and it seems like the Air Force. Uh, respected us pretty well and we, we carried away okay so that that was that was a mission accomplished right there yeah wow incredible incredible 
So, okay, now I, I don't have any more big awards that I have in front of me, um, but I know you came back to America after Vietnam and you did your tour over there and you weren't done because your name came up from Jeff Tunks and that's how I got in touch with you because of rescues that you did even after you got back into the States. So it's not like you came back and hung up your hat. You kept going. Uh, no, what really, uh, I, that's when they had just opened up the uh, uh, aviation training center in Mobile for all the pilots to go through, uh, primarily in, in transitioning from the H-52 into the H-3. And uh, I was there as an instructor pilot. So I spent the last four, almost five years, I guess, before I retired uh, at Mobile, uh, going to the various uh, air stations, doing uh, uh, on-scene checks and uh, conducting the school there at Mobile while we were there. And so that, that was a good thing too. Um, yep, and then, then I retired in, I guess, 1973 after 21 and a half years. So wound up, um, yeah, I was, I was enlisted for seven years before I went to, to uh, OCS. So I, I got a taste of both sides quite well. <laughs> what a great career and just wow like I wasn't even alive yet and, and you had already done a 20 year <laughs> career <laughs> not that I want to uh, give away ages or anything but <laughs> man that, so that's amazing that is absolutely amazing and you have paved such an amazing way with aviation for all of us that are behind you so thank you for that well you're quite welcome it's, it's been a pleasure it's a pleasure uh, talking to you and, and, and to meeting uh, Mrs. Quinn. My, my pleasure, Jason. Awesome. Um, stay, stay in touch. I will. But before I let you go, I, I do want to ask one thing. So you have an incredible career, 21 years. You have a plethora of knowledge. If you had a short little snippet of something that you could pass on to guys like myself and us younger generation, what do you think that would be? Um. I, I think uh, ded dedication to duty, I think. I like that. I like that a lot. Yep. Stick to your guns. <laughs> That's right. Awesome. Mr. Lonnie, thank you so much for coming on to the Real Rescue Podcast with me. It has been an absolute honor and an absolute privilege to have you. So I appreciate all the stories. Uh, thank you very much, Jason. You're Have welcome. a good day. You too. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we are out of here. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Real Rescue Podcast. Please take a minute and like my daughters like to tell me, like and subscribe. Oh yeah. I'm pulling chocks and taking off. But before I go, if anyone out there has a rescue story that they would be willing to share... I would be humbled and honored to have you as a guest. Or if you have any questions about any of the rescues or anything else that we talk about here on this podcast, send me an email, therealrescue at gmail.com. That's T-H-E-R-E-A-L-R-E-S-Q at gmail.com. You can also check us out on our Facebook and Instagram page at The Real Rescue. That's at T-H-E-R-E-A-L-R-E-S-Q. I also want to give a special thank you to all of you standing on the watch today. Always remember that when that SAR alarm goes off, 
Those in distress are praying for a miracle. They are going to get you. Until next time, fly safe and swim hard.